This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 23rd of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. Thank you for joining us for this festive monocle on Saturday, Christmas Eve's Eve. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a look through the week's news and culture with the freelance journalist and communications consultant, Simon Brooke. Then... Having first started in 1931 by a group of construction workers... The planting and lighting of the tree is now one of the greatest ceremonies in New York City. We'll get behind the scenes to look at one of New York's greatest annual events. Plus... You don't have to rummage too deeply among the ephemera of Quebec City's antique shops and trinket stores to encounter one of the city's most famous emblems. Monocle's Thomas Lewis introduces us to Quebec City's mascot, Bonhomme the Snowman. First, though, here's the news. On Friday, after days of wrangling to avert a threatened US veto, the UN Security Council passed a resolution urging steps to allow safe, unhindered and expanded humanitarian access to Gaza and conditions for a sustainable cessation of fighting. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and military officials said the country's forces shot down three Russian Su-34 fighter-bomber aircraft on Friday on the southern front, hailing it as a success in the 22-month-old war. Former Credit Suisse CEO Tiani Tiam was elected on Friday as leader of the PDCI, one of Ivory Coast's main opposition parties, making him a likely candidate in the 2025 presidential election. And 39 years after the song Last Christmas by Wham was released, it's finally taken the number one slot in the British charts. Written and produced by George Michael, the song was beaten to the crown in 1984 by Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas. Michael died on Christmas Day in 2016, aged 53. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm joined now in the studio by Simon Brooke. Good morning to you, Simon. Good morning. Are you ready for Christmas? It's got to be the, the first question. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer inevitably is no, I'm not really. I, I don't know who, who, who made it the 25th. It always seems to leap forward. One minute it's kind of the end of November, beginning of December, and the next minute it's on us. I don't know. How does it happen? Absolutely. Well, I have to tell you, I've dodged the whole thing. I've already celebrated Christmas because of travel and work and everything. There was only one day where those closest to me could get around the table together and it was this Thursday. We've done it. I'm going to be in bed for Christmas Day. What a wonderful idea. You've ticked it off, all that hassle or whatever, and now you can just relax and indulge. It sounds brilliant. Uh, what will you do? Well, in fact, I'm going to my sister and my brother-in-law's for Christmas dinner, uh, but before that I'll be going to church, so um, I'm helping organise the service there. So it will probably be a huge chaotic, family orientated brawl, but great fun. Well, of course, church is really, really interesting, isn't it? Particularly as we look at the, the Christmas story, which, of course, began 2,000 years ago in the most conflicted place in the world right now. Uh, and people going to church and, and wondering, I mean, I've heard people of faith recently say to me, looking at Palestine, I begin to 
to to query my faith. How can these terrible things be happening to people on on both sides? There's a really lovely essay by um, A. N. Wilson in the Times today, uh, talking about people who just go to church once a year, and that's at Christmas or perhaps at Easter too. He says um, churches exist as much for those who don't go as for those who do, and that's part of their beauty. Those who pack pews at midnight mass express deeply embedded. Pieties that are separate from a devout Christian faith, and I think that's true. People have it, certainly here in Britain. There's a kind of cultural Christianity. I'm not a person of faith at all, but I love the architecture, I love the paintings, I love the music, uh, and from a long, long line of Anglican vicars, it is deeply embedded in me, though I don't believe. And I think a lot of people feel like that. Um, and, and as I say, I'm, I'll be. At church this Sunday, sorry, this Christmas Day, when many people will be turning up, who just like A. N. Wilson says in this piece, only come for very few occasions. I, I'm a regular goer, but I'm delighted to see them. And I think it's funny because I was at a children's service a few weeks ago, and there was a, a little girl who was reading a prayer that she and her mum had written together, and. Um, it was giving thanks for all the good things she's got. She was praying for her family and friends. She was praying for the poor children who don't have all those wonderful, you know, the food, the Christmas presents, all the other benefits that she has. And I thought, even if there isn't anybody there, do you know what I mean? Even if we don't believe in God, the fact that this young girl was coming to this place and sharing these thoughts with her family and friends and, and other members of the congregation, you know, that's got to be a good thing. And I think what's interesting is we're actually seeing an increase in the number of people um, coming to cathedrals, for instance, because I think they like, as you say, the music, the art, but just to get away from the hustle and bustle and the busyness of everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it just, yeah, it's it's... I suppose it's a, it's a tradition as well, yeah. isn't it? And um, I think perhaps in these difficult times we're, we're clinging on to traditions because, as you say, there might be the theological question about how on earth could a loving God let such terrible things happen, especially in the birthplace of his son. It's The irony is just tragic. But at the same time, yeah, um, perhaps we do want to hang on to these reassuring, comforting traditions. And if I'm going to get a bit gaudy about it, then, you know, that the message of Christianity is ultimately uh, one of hope and, you know, a triumph over evil. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about some of these terrible things that are happening in in uh, in Israel, in Palestine, uh, in Gaza. Um, so the New York Times uh, is picking up on this really, uh, uh, I mean, we were all holding our breath waiting for for some kind of kind of announcement from from the UN, from the UN we were hoping uh of course that it wouldn't be watered down it has been so much so uh tell us about this this uh, security council resolution yeah so uh, as you mentioned earlier in the news that the the UN security security council has passed this resolution calling for safe unhindered and expanded humanitarian access the new york times is looking really at the damage that the US backing for Israel has done to its standing amongst many other countries around the world. And it draws a really interesting comparison or contrast, really, with the wide-ranging international support that President Biden pulled together in defence of Ukraine. And now, as I say, very, very different uh, with its... Uh, the, the, the sort of the reaction its uh, stance has created on Israel and Gaza, uh, and the paper points out the United States, is now at odds with staunch allies like France, Canada, Australia and Japan, all of whom voted earlier this month for a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Um, so obviously the question is whether the US would have to would veto it, and given, as you say, that the resolution was watered down, 
that did allow um, the Biden administration to instruct its uh, its UN ambassador to, to just go for a veto. Sorry, just to, to, to abstain rather than vetoing. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting that difference now in the standing of. Uh, the United States. And I think also interesting to look at domestic politics as well, that the Biden administration's support for um, Israel is really causing difficult, causing it difficulties when it comes to talking to younger voters, many of whom would traditionally be Democrat, who do feel that it's unfair. They're naturally sort of more drawn towards Palestine. So this incredibly difficult situation that the Biden administration finds itself in is not having uh, not only having international ramifications but with a presidential election less than a year away it's doing damage uh, at home as well and of course there are many people talking about how the united states has lost the global goodwill that it earned from its response to russian aggression but of course it's aligned itself with russia on this vote they were the only two that abstained uh, and uh, there's all sorts of problems of course with the support for ukraine yeah exactly and this is you look at what happened recently uh, on the hill when uh, Republicans refused to give that extra financial backing to Ukraine. You look at the problems here in Europe when Viktor Orban of Hungary vetoed the European Union uh, donation of funds. Um, and I think what's interesting and tragic, really, we, we're, we're seeing the last over the last few weeks in Ukraine is it's a kind of vicious circle. You know, the, 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 the Ukrainian fight back has stalled slightly. Russia seems to be on the ascendant, doesn't it? So the problem is, why would you want to throw good money after bad, uh, you know, supporting Ukraine when it doesn't look like they're going to win? And of course, they won't win <laughs> if they don't get the financial support they need. So, um, yeah, really difficult times, well, for the whole world, um, given, you know, the situation, not just in the Middle East, but also, let's face it, here in Europe. Absolutely. And Sudan, particularly at the moment, Ukraine, yeah. all of these Yemen. places where yeah. uh, 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 the cost of living crisis is really, really biting. And people yeah. are finding it very, very hard uh, to, I mean, this is a time of year where p- people traditionally overindulge. But in mm. fact, uh, some people are still able to do that. And some that do are um, relying on a particular kind of cheese for their celebrations <laughs> this exactly. year. Exactly. So yeah, more bad news. This bad. This is this on the cheese front, in case you're interested. So if <laughs> you're looking forward to uh, a delicious mouthful of uh, La Rocheforte, which uh, according to the Times is an unctuous cow's milk cheese. Uh, It's been created by the Agricultural Sixth Form College at Rochefort, Montagne in the Auvergne region of France. But yet bad news it's run out. Um, apparently, according to Alice uh, Chazal, who's the director of the school farm, which incidentally has 35 cows and 300 sheep. So that's, that's quite a big farm, isn't it? It yeah, is. Quite substantial. Uh, it's been out of stock for two months. But I think it's tragic, but then also wonderful that this, uh, this school is teaching young people the, to get into the traditional French tradition, so the traditional French activity of, of cheese making, um, you know, and wonderful that there is such a demand for this wonderful cheese that these kids make. And there's a lovely picture of them all in their uh, white uh, jackets here with the cheese smiling. That such a, is the demand that it, it has sold out. Absolutely. Well, as far as festive traditions go, the lighting of the tree in New York's Rockefeller Center is one of the best known. The almost 100 foot tall Norway spruce is lit annually by the mayor of New York in front of an enormous live and television audience. The tree attracts more than 100 million visitors every year. Well, Mary Holland tells the story of this festive icon of New York City. It's the New York.
York tradition that's as quintessential as the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade or New Year's Ball Drop in Times Square. One that's also been made famous by movies such as Home Alone, where the actor Macaulay Culkin is reunited with his family under the tree. Kevin? And while foreigners come from far and wide to see the Rockefeller Center tree planted, which happens every November, it's also a tradition loved by New Yorkers. Having first started in 1931 by a group of construction workers building the Rockefeller Center, the planting and lighting of the tree is now one of the greatest ceremonies in New York City and a sign that the festive season is now in full swing. All right, let's start the countdown. Drum roll, please! An excuse for all the other holiday rituals and cheer, eating roasted chestnuts on the street, ice skating in Bryant or Central Park, or watching the Nutcracker. Looking at the towering plant in midtown Manhattan, surrounded by soaring office blocks, one can only wonder, how does it get there? For the team behind the production, the process starts long before Thanksgiving weekend begins. It's all head gardener Eric Paws thinks about. When he's not involved in planting the tree, he's looking for the tree. This year, his journey took him to Vestal, New York, where on his way to see one tree, he drove past another one unexpectedly, an 80-foot Norway spruce located on a property of the McGinley family. He knocked on their door and told them that it looks just like a Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. The family generously agreed to donate it. Paws, who has been working this job for three decades, then set about watering it and tending to it to ensure it's in tip-top shape before it's chopped. Nothing about this production is easy or small-scale. Its branches are carefully wrapped so they don't break, and the tree is loaded onto a truck bound for New York City. Once erected, it's strung with lights, in this year's case, with 50,000 multicolored LEDs on approximately five miles of wire. The star, which sits on top, has 70 spikes with some 3 million Swarovski crystals. The celebrations then begin. An evening is allocated for the tree lighting ceremony where broadcasters and press flood in and musicians perform. For the next couple of weeks, it stands as a shiny centerpiece in the city, sometimes with snow-tipped leaves. Even for those who don't care for the festive season, it's hard not to be in awe of the brilliant towering tree lit up in the middle of this urban jungle. Mary Holland from Monocle's Tool Stories. I was actually in New York last Christmas, and that tree is, I mean, it's massively impressive. New York, they do it so well at Christmas, don't they? Something about because it's always going to be cold and frosty, isn't it? And, and the sparkly things going on, and the chestnuts, really. Mm, I can taste them, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing that, that, that something like that does, a, a sort of big uh, focal point in the city centre, is give something to people who perhaps have no family or nowhere to go. People who are feeling a little bit lonely and isolated at Christmas, because that it is a time of year when, when that comes many, into particularly yeah. sharp focus. Uh, and you have found a wonderful story about a very lonely sheep. Now, we have been following <laughs> this story for some time. It, it has a good ending. And now she's going on to do better things. So give us the background first on Fiona. Yeah, so uh, Fiona is uh, officially the world's loneliest, loneliest sheep. Um, she was uh, spotted living alone at the bottom of a cliff near Brora, um, by a kayaker. This is this is in the Scottish Highlands, and um, she is going to be the new face of campaigns aimed at preventing loneliness in the agricultural community. So, um, yeah, suddenly she's going to be a superstar. I have to say, I'm not sure whether Fiona well 
well, I'm not sure, A, whether anybody's told her this, and B, <laughs> given that she apparently seems quite happy with her solitary lifestyle, how she's going to feel um, given that she's going to be kind of an international superstar. So she was rescued, and it was a huge operation to get her off this island. Nobody quite knows how she got there by herself on, on this deserted beach. She was rescued, and as you say, she's she's now you know there, and she's heading this campaign, which uh, has the catchphrase, R-U-E-W-E, <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> oh Somebody, some copywriters earn their money for that, haven't they? Absolutely. But what that is actually is a, is a, a, another lovely example mm. of the fact that it is a, a, an organisation that's reaching out to help people. Yeah. Uh, and really, really surprisingly, there is a story uh, from the FT talking about, despite the spike in inflation and the cost of living squeeze, uh, the annual report from the Charities Aid Foundation says donations to charity in 2022 still reached a record £12.7 billion. That's up from £10.7 billion through the year before. Extraordinary. And I mean, I'm just doing the maths very quickly on that. That's nearly, nearly a 20% up by a fifth, isn't it, or something? Yeah, a fifth, uh, which is pretty amazing, really. Um, and uh, the, yeah, the FT uh, editorial board just in this piece looks at uh, what the uh, charitable impulse, well, the fact that the charitable impulse is a universal one. It's interesting here. The Indonesian concept of the joint bearing of burdens, Gotong Royong, apologies for my pronunciation, uh, may be why, one of the reasons why Indonesia tops the Charities Aid Foundation's World Giving Index for the sixth year in a row. Um, but uh, the paper also makes the point that the world's most generous givers on a range of measures include the foremost superpowers, such as Liberia and Kenya. So, yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that this is, and this is probably a Christian thing again, but certainly a, a seasonal thing, this idea that even if you don't have a lot, um, that uh, doesn't necessarily uh, reflect on whether you're, you're willing to give or not. Mm, and that's also a central tenet of, of Islam, is, is to be charitable yeah, pillars, and, to, and, to, yeah. and to give. Yeah. Um, uh, and this, this is, uh, t- talking about actually how, although charitable giving remains strong and large gifts by the world's wealthiest, uh, but um, since since COVID, non-financial gifts such as volunteering haven't returned to those pre-pandemic levels. That's a shame, isn't it? I mean, it's so difficult to, to get people to do that. Yeah, I think, you know, if you've volunteered yourself or you know people who volunteer, we, we know, and then there's independent research to show the benefits it brings to people, doesn't it? You know, uh, obviously not financial, but in terms of psychology, your feeling of well-being, your connection with other people, all these kind of things. Um, uh, interesting, just completely randomly, but David Cameron now back in for- as Foreign Secretary, uh, of course, his big thing when he was Tory party leader was the big society, this idea of getting people involved in voluntary organisations which could then support state organisations like the National Health Service and things, never really took off, which I thought was a real shame because I think if they'd given it a bit more of a push, um, I think there'd be many more people, you know, who'd have been willing to do that and we'd, Mm. you know, have a better society as a result. Absolutely, and something to celebrate. Now, popping a bottle of fizz is the way that (laughs) people often celebrate, but it can be almost lethal. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, there, there is this uh, horrible uh, story, apocryphal story of the man who was so uh, thrilled to get his um, sight back. He opened a bottle of champagne, then knocked one eye out, which is really cruel, isn't it? But, um, <laughs> sorry. But um, yeah, so so this is um, 
a, a danger that we all have to be aware of uh, this Christmas, uh, according to new research. This is a team at the University of Cambridge have issued guidance, according to the Times, on how to open a bottle of champagne safely. So this includes covering the cork with a towel should be a tea towel, should anywhere, mm. towel, napkin, when open it, to ensure that revellers do not begin the new year on the operating table of an eye surgeon, according to the university. You don't really want to think about that, do you? Isn't, <laughs> isn't part of the point of champagne that it does explode and go all over the place, isn't it? Well, that? the correct way to open it is oh. to have it at a 45-degree angle. Have the, the towel or whatever it is over the top, right. and you twist the bottle very gently. The not bottle, the not the cork. Uh, and it should just sigh off very easily. Um, you obviously have a lot of experience I of do. this, <laughs> in fact, just now I noticed. <laughs> um, so, um, I mean, that's the correct way to do it. But of course, people do like to have this big explosion, and yeah. and it's it's more of a show rather than yeah, drinking absolutely. the champagne, isn't yeah. it? But champagne corks, according to this, fly out at speeds of up to fifty miles an hour. Incredible. Uh, the pressure in a seven hundred and fifty milliliter bottle of champagne or sparkling wine is about three times that of a standard car tire, and uh, has the potential to launch a cork more than forty feet. That's that's incredible. I can see a whole competition starting, can't you? A group of sommeliers or or perhaps they, sh- they, do, they do it properly, of course. It should be rubbish champagne bottle openers like me to see who could yeah. get the cork the, the furthest or something. Apparently it can travel from bottle to eye in 0.05 seconds. Yeah, wow. that is really far. I mean, you That's would, really fast. you'd have to be very quick to dodge that. Like, oh, it's coming towards my eye. I better get out of the way. I mean, you're not going to yeah, do you're that. You're not going to do that. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> have you ever been hit by a flying cork? I think so. Not in the eye. Um, but yeah, deliberately, actually, some people have thought it terribly witty to, am I the kind of person that people want to aim a, aim a champagne, champagne cork or a football at i don't know but um yeah but but no great injury i have to say well that's good both eyes still in working order (laughs) (laughs) now this year we made our own crackers and that was such fun and we even did the uh we even did the jokes ourselves um which was which was just lovely um and and we sort of went so we decided to i decided to liberate myself from a christmas tree and so what we did was we just did this fantastic kind of floral and fruit kind of centerpiece sort of spray painting pineapples, Much more gold creative. and yeah. pears. And we went on Hampstead Heath and yeah. foraged all of this wonderful Brilliant. greenery. And it was just so much fun to do it. And in between there, sort of little bits of, um, you know, champagne, you know, the yeah. cage thing oh, yeah. and the yeah. foil. Yeah. You can just make it all terribly jolly. Yeah. Um, but what does your choice of Christmas baubles say about you? Because this is a, a question that The Guardian asks. Yes, absolutely. So um, last year, according to The Guardian, Selfridges, the department store here in the UK, sold out of its food-themed decorations by early November with a champagne glass number one on the list. But you can also, you'll be glad to hear, buy uh, pizza slices, gherkins, chicken buckets, chicken buckets and hot chocolate baubles which you can hang on your tree and there in the Guardian is actually, this is courtesy of John Lewis, the other big department store, um, a a pizza uh, decoration which you can hang on your tree. Um, I'm trying to work out what's the Christmas connection with that or i'm not sure that there is there one, is one really. it's, it, i mean it's hard isn't it so they yeah. also say that but people what, what's quite um popular are political slogans <laughs> and figures greta thunberg uh is available in various ways the conservative <laughs> party shop sells margaret thatcher baubles 
um, which would seem... That's two people. I'm sorry, that's two people who would kill the festive spirit for me. <laughs> Unless you're going to aim your champagne cork at them, I don't know. But I mean, and so I'm normally in mm. Zurich for the mm. Monaco Christmas market and mm. at our market, but indeed in a couple of big markets in Zurich, there are some fantastic Christmas decorations available. And I try and make a point of actually always buying a Christmas yeah. decoration yeah. Uh, when I go there. So I've got some lovely things collected, in fact, from, from all over the world. I've got a little steamer that was bought... Uh, that we bought in um, uh, in in America uh, in um, how have I forgotten the name of Mississippi, the place? Perhaps, yeah, yeah it's known uh, for is it? Yeah, yeah. New yeah. Orleans. New Orleans. Sorry, yeah, absolutely, yeah, where it's known for. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and things like that. So yeah. just it's sort of nice yeah. to have those reminders of that's of true. But yeah. as I say, we didn't put them up this year. And the one yeah. bit that I really miss from that is every year when my child was small and had friends around, we'd sit there and we'd write how we felt the last year had gone oh, gosh. and what we'd like for the next year. And we'd put it into Brilliant. the Christmas decoration box. So the next year, when you brought the box down, you'd open it and read what you'd read the, the year before. Almost like a time exactly. capsule or it something. Was, it, was, yeah. it was such fun to yeah. do. I, I, and make I, that comparison. Absolutely. Uh, and I just think, particularly when you've got kids, just doing this kind of crafty thing, yeah. do, making stuff. De- much is, better than buying. Yeah. I have to say, my mum and dad, right up to their last years, their Christmas tree had a couple of Christmas baubles, like little Christmas bells that I made when I was five. So they wow. must have kept them for sort of, <laughs> what's that, 55 years or something. Yeah. They were excellent, I have to say, such well, good taste. Well, and you're such a good artist. Let's talk about another great artist. That's Banksy, yes. who's in the news again. What's going on there? Absolutely. So I think this is a, this is a, a lovely story, uh, really. So Banksy, yes, as you know, the the subversive artist, or whatever. So it turns out um, that uh, that uh, in East London, a man, uh, according to the BBC, a man who watched a Banksy artwork on a stop sign uh, being removed uh, has described how he he thought it was confirmed it was authentic. This really happened, and he watched in awe. So basically, um, it looks what seems to have happened is that Banksy has uh, created this artwork, which is a traditional stop sign with three uh, uh, airplanes on it, I suppose, obviously making a protest there, but that usual sort of, as I say, subversive... Military uh, drones. Oh, is that what they are? Sorry, I wasn't sure if it's kind of anti, you know, air air, air travel or something, but military drones. Abs, thank you. Exactly. Um, And so, and of course, what happened was that uh, somebody saw this happening or or they saw the... Uh, the piece, I think, on social media, and then why not uh, popped along and helped themselves to it and stole it. And I think there's something quite funny about the fact that Banksy, as I say, subversive, you know, very much against authority or whatever, and um, he's been Banksied himself, I suppose, in a way, because somebody, as I say, has <laughs> half-inched his, uh, his, this latest piece. Dear, oh dear. Let's whiz over to Canada now and take a closer look at one of the most recognisable symbols of winter there. Uh, the mascot of Quebec City's annual winter festival is a jolly, cheerful figure of a snowman created in 1954. Well, Monocle's correspondent in Canada is Thomas Lewis. He introduces us to the city's beloved figurehead, Bonhomme. You don't have to rummage too deeply among the ephemera of Quebec City's antique shops and trinket stores to encounter one of the city's most famous emblems, Bonhomme the ever-smiling snowman, one arm raised in a wave, who sports his famous floppy red bobble hat year-round. In fact, even outside the winter months, he's one of the city's most beloved symbols. Bonhomme is hard to miss. There's even a life-size statue of him at the arrivals concourse at Quebec City's International Airport. 
Officially, Bonhomme is the mascot of Quebec City's annual winter carnival, but he's become arguably over the decades a symbol of the city more broadly, a cheerful, welcoming figure, forever smiling, even in the depths of Quebec's famously arduous winters. The mascot was created in the early 1950s when the three founders of the city's Winter Carnival worked to drum up interest in the three-week Winter Festival. A mascot, it was deemed, would do the job. A jovial emblem of some kind to draw people out of their homes and into the city during the weeks of winter at the beginning of the year. Bonhomme was created in 1954 and made his debut in public in living, breathing form, thanks to the person wearing the official Bonhomme costume that year, on the 9th of January 1955. So popular did the mascot become that the city's mayor at the time presented him with the great honour of the keys to the city, the first time the honour had been granted to anyone, let alone a person nestled inside a snowman costume. That's a warm tradition that continues to this day, when Bonhomme is presented with the keys to the city at the beginning of the carnival to kick off the festivities. But a greater honour is who gets to don the official Bonhomme costume each year during the carnival. For years it was the carnival's committee who decided on the person inside this most storied of Quebecois costumes. Whoever it was, it was someone deemed to have contributed in a meaningful way to the city's French-speaking community. Since 2023, however, residents in the city have had a say on who gets to don the famous outfit, confirming, perhaps, Bonhomme's status all along, if you'll pardon the pun, as a snowman of the people. This coming year's festival begins on the 25th of January and will feature its regular popular fixtures, a vast ice palace, snow sculptures, the annual winter parade and performances by some of Quebec's best-loved acts, all watched over, of course, by the ubiquitous presence of Bonhomme himself. But most important of all, perhaps, is that the 2024 edition of the festival is a particularly big year for Bonhomme. It's his 70th birthday, a milestone that Bonhomme, unlike the rest of us mere mortals, will have the luxury of celebrating among the thousands of carnival goers looking not a day older and looking no less cheery at the prospect of wintry days ahead than he did on the day he was born. For Monocle, I'm Thomas Lewis. Many thanks to Tomas. And uh, he made that for The Urbanist. And if you want to hear more, the full festive special edition is out now on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. So Bonhomme, number one for people in Quebec. Here at number one in the British pop charts for the very first time. Unbelievable. Is Wham! and Last Christmas. So this came out originally in 1984. It was uh, beaten to the top spot by Do They Know It's Christmas? Answer, no. No surprise there. Um, <laughs> and, it's, and it's never actually made number one until now 39 years after it was written. Um, there's a great piece in the Telegraph. Um, it's an interview with Simon Napier-Bell who was the producer of Wham! He's now 84. Uh, and, and one of the things he says is that George Michael who wrote and produced the song himself uh, and sang it, obviously, alongside his bandmate and Andrew Ridgely, uh, knew that it was his best work ever mm. and had an uneasy relationship with it because, of course, it was a Christmas song and he felt, yeah. I think, slightly... Cheesy, perhaps. But, exactly. Yeah. Um, another really interesting thing about the song was that he wanted to give all of the royalties to Ethiopia, to, to the famine there. Uh, but, of course, the record company wasn't going to give their royalties and he couldn't take Andrew Ridgely's royalties. So, 
but even up until today, his portion of the royalties do go to, to famine relief. Still, which I that's think brilliant, is, isn't it? Just what we were saying about philanthropy a moment ago. Exactly. And of course, he, he George Michael, famously died on Christmas Day. That was 2016, mm. I think. Um, but it, it's, uh, it's extraordinary. Now, tell me about your relationship with the song. <laughs> well, I think like a lot of people, I... I've done a sort of 180 degree turn on this because originally I absolutely hated it because I thought I hated all Christmas songs. But then it does sort of slightly grow on you. And I think there's something about the fact that it's it's interesting. It's a really sad song, isn't it? It's a sad song of story of of loss and and love unrequited and betrayal, I, I, I'm assuming, given the, the lyrics and stuff. So the fact that so many people are willing to, obviously, as we've seen this year, I mean, obviously, it's been successful for for 39 years, but uh, particularly successful this year. Um, I think, you know, it's, uh, and as uh, Andrew Ridgely says in this Telegraph piece, um, Yog, as uh, George Michael was known, said that he wrote last Christmas with the intention of writing a Christmas number one, it's mission accomplished, which is, but perhaps there is something about Christmas where alongside the jollity and the flying champagne corks and uh, and the laughter and stuff, there is a, it is a time for reflection and a bit of sentimentality. And so, you know, perhaps that's why this sort of resonates with people. But if you hate it, there is a game called Whamageddon. <laughs> and it's an annual challenge to avoid hearing Wham's hit last Christmas. And apparently it's reaching new heights thanks to trending TikTok hashtag in which thousands of players are sharing how they plan to win the challenge or how they lost. So how do you avoid last Christmas? I, I, was gonna say, I don't know. I'm just thinking what an incredibly difficult thing to do. Presumably you have to either walk around with headphones on all the time or you stay at home and don't look at the internet, switch on the telly or the radio. I mean... It must be, A, almost impossible to do, and B, I'm not quite sure how, if you win this coveted award, I mean, how do you prove the negative? How do you prove that you haven't heard this song? Um, I'm, I'm not sure quite I, I mean, I love the, or why you do it really <laughs> it was the, the game Whamageddon was created in Denmark about 20 years ago by four friends uh, they decided to make a, a game out of it challenging each other to make it to Christmas without hearing Wham's yeah good luck with that one <laughs> absolutely listen Simon that's all we've got time for thank you very much thank thanks you. also to our producer Mariella Bevan and our studio engineer Christy O'Grady thanks of course to Simon and Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend for a look back at the biggest stories of 2023 I'm Georgina Godwin. And oh, if you thought you were going to get away with it, you're not. Unless you switch off right now.